Welcome to Maiden, podcast by Jazz and Evie, two Asian Canadian women sharing current culture and society moments through our lens. Each episode, we share our thoughts, feelings, and resources to create an open dialogue and a safe space for our community. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Maiden. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening to our last uh, food cultural takedown episode. It was awesome. And thank you for all your DMs. It was super nice. I really felt like a real influencer with all these people sliding (laughs) to my DMs. We did get one, this sugar daddy guy uh, asking us if he can pay us $1,000 a week. I'm genuinely flattered (laughs) that we have made it to this point. So kudos to us. This was a good milestone. No, No, hell no. That's a weird I blocked him real quick. That's a weird ass Asian fetish thing for real, I think. But anyway, sorry, all that aside, really special episode today. We have Alex Wong here and also known as Steven LeBron. I was just about to say Alex LeBron. That's why I was like, wait, what? what, Hold on. It's Alex Wong. He's an MBA writer. And also, you know, he writes a lot of different other things too. And you've seen his stuff in GQ, New York Times, Slam. I mean, if you're on Twitter, you know this dude. That's what it is. He also has a podcast on Yahoo Canada with William Liu, another Slajian. Shout out called Run It Back, and he also has his own podcast, Stephen LeBron Radio. And if that's not enough, this man wrote a damn book during the Raptors run. Yes, what he did. Co-wrote, sorry, co-wrote, still wrote something. It's called uh, We The Champ. So Alex is here. What's up? Hi, Alex. Hey. Hey, what's up, Evie, Jasmine? Thanks for having me on. I uh, love this podcast, so excited to be a guest. Thank you so much. And to be clear, we did not pay him to say that. Um, but <laughs> holy crap, Evie, your intro, I had the biggest like proud dad face smile on as we are introducing him. That was beautiful. How do you feel, Alex? You're so important. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I love to be an important person in any room so you know any intro that makes me uh, look good i'm always for it and honestly i'm surprised you know you, you did your research evie uh and you really hyped me up so i'm really excited well he wrote a damn book it's funny because like i feel like the book element is always something that i'm like oh my god he also wrote a book you know like i you're just on twitter like every day and i'm seeing like podcasts every day so i'm just like like the thing that like the podcast you put out daily so I'm always just like, wait, he also wrote a whole ass book. So that's the thing I didn't want to forget. I can barely write my own Instagram bio. So you wrote a damn book. (laughs) Yeah. If you want to pay me a thousand dollars for that, I can do that. (laughs) I'll ask my sugar daddy. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay. Before we get started into diving into how you were able to write a damn book, get all these amazing, impressive bylines, I just kind of want to kickstart the episode just asking what was like the one fun fact that you learned last week or something that you read or watched that has like resonated with you? Oh, so I recently finished reading a biography of Bruce Lee. Oh my God. You know, I, I guess that might be relevant since this is a very Asian podcast, obviously. Obviously, we all know Bruce Lee, but I didn't really like know his whole story growing up. You know, my parents would tell me uh, bits and pieces about him, you know, when I was growing up in Hong Kong. Um, and I would hear about it, obviously, from my friends. But just diving into his book and, and learning his whole story just about how he struggled to find a role in Hollywood and obviously the story of how he passed away so tragically uh, at such a young age. That was one of the best reads that I've had during this pandemic slash quarantine. Wait, how did he die? Um, so he 
he took some pills and he had a reaction. There was a whole uh, like investigation into it. But basically it was kind of just kind of a sudden death at like age 32. Like a pharmaceutical pill, not like a drug pill. Yeah, he, he wasn't feeling well. And I think so this is all complicated because he was at his mistress's house when this happened. Oh, the plot thickens. Wow. Yeah, so so he had to lay down and rest and, you know, she gave him one of these pills and he just never woke up. And then they had to hide the story because he was having an affair with this actress. Right. And obviously right. Bruce Lee was such a big name. And you know how it is, especially, you know, in Hong Kong and probably Asian culture, you know, you don't want kind of that salacious gossip type thing to, to come out, right? Yeah, oh. so so they made up a whole story about how, because she was a co-star in a movie, uh, so it was a whole story about how he was over there to talk about a script, etc., etc. Et so the real story right. actually didn't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the whole story didn't really come out until 30 years later. Wow. When the actress, I think her name is Betty Ting, she actually uh, kind of told the real story. That's crazy. Imagine being her. Wait, I... I guess since the story was buried, they didn't go into like investigations to see if she was like the murderer. Yeah, <laughs> I think she I think she was cleared of that. And, you know, I, I'm just going to go ahead and believe that. But it I learned a lot about Bruce Lee because I feel like people know Bruce Lee just for you know who Bruce Lee is. He's yeah. such a popular figure. But um, actually reading and learning his story uh, was really eye opening for me. That's so cool. I also just saw Jackie Chan's parents, uh, like the story about them, I literally just saw it on Instagram before we started this, but apparently Jackie Chan's dad was like a spy and then um, was able to arrest his wife who was like an opium dealer and she was like a huge drug (coughs) dealer at this time. She was like the drug lord. And then, yeah, they apparently got married and then Jackie Chan only found out like not that long ago. So, wow, all these hidden family drama and they pretend to be all squeaky clean and going getting doctor's degrees. That's a very Asian thing. Uh, yeah, just yeah. Pretend, all families just pretend that everything's great. Yeah, it's so Hong Kong is like a, there's damn messes everywhere, probably in our own families. But we're all just like, you know, we're all good. We're all smart and we're all like going to be successful doctors. So obviously we're fine. I, I definitely want to read that. I know there was like a documentary on Bruce Lee, too. I haven't been able to watch that yet. But what's what's the title of the book? I think it's just called Bruce Lee. Oh, easy. So everybody should check that out. Did you find, have, sorry, maybe I'm alluding to this, but was the author white? Oh, yes, he was. But I think he does have a background in terms of being familiar with reporting in Asia. Cool. Why am I defending this guy? Yeah, he was white. I don't know. <laughs> Just it's because we're Asian. Yeah, giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. No, but honestly. I was just, yeah, I was just curious if you maybe reading it felt like the story wasn't told to its like full fruition because it came from like a different voice, but good to know that, you know, you did your research. We'll back him for now. Um, great. Well, let's get right into it. I guess, yeah, why don't you tell the listeners who you are, despite Evie did a great job kind of giving you all the high points. But yeah, who is Alex Wong? And who the hell is Stephen LeBron? I kept calling you Stephen for the longest time. Yeah, so I still get emails, you know, <laughs> PR people, um, and I guess people that just don't know me, who still address me as Stephen. Uh, yeah, no, no, for sure. Uh, no humble brags, just actual brags. And like, <laughs> I've had, I've had people come up to me in real life and call me Stephen. And I've never really wow, corrected people fans. because, 
because, you know, it's really my fault. So uh, just a quick story. Um, you know, there's no kind of super interesting story about Stephen LeBron. So I used to work a nine to five job. You know, I went to school for uh, business. I got my BBA and then I studied to get my CPA. And then I worked at Ernst & Young, you know, an accounting Sounds firm. Sounds Asian. Classic, classic Asian trajectory. Classic. Yeah. I'm sure you know about 15 people that were just like me, like working in the financial district uh, yeah. on Bay Street, just pure like assholes. That was <laughs> me in my wrong? 20s. So uh, I was bouncing between jobs in that industry uh, when I signed up for Twitter. And the day that I signed up for Twitter, uh, I needed uh, a name that wouldn't trace back to me because I just right. didn't want, obviously, HR at my work. Because uh, I guess I guess the statute of limitations has passed because I was literally like tweeting like while I was in meetings. Like I, I would live tweet <laughs> meetings and make fun of like the PowerPoint decks uh, that were happening and things like that. Whoa. Very specific things. Um, so I needed uh, kind of an anonymous name. And on that day, there was a sports headline that said Cleveland's LeBron suspended 50 games for steroids. And obviously, it was a very clickbait headline. Wow. Everybody thought it was LeBron James. When yeah. you click on it, it's actually a minor league uh, baseball player named Stephen LeBron. Oh, my God. So, that's amazing. Yeah. So I was like, this is hilarious. Uh, I'm just going to take... Stephen LeBron on every single platform and <laughs> it just kind of stuck after a while because people kind of knew me by that and yeah. even when I started writing I would kind of hide behind that name as a byline because I was still working full-time and it was pretty obvious that I was like doing some writing you know at my day job so I needed like a separation so I kind of just kept that uh, as my internet name I guess. Do you have like imposter syndrome? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I just hate my Chinese name. You know, Alex Wong is such a boring name. <laughs> and um, every other. Yeah, because I actually tried to find you on LinkedIn and I looked into so many different profiles that wasn't you. So. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that's why I've had 22 new searches on LinkedIn this week. Um, I haven't wow. used LinkedIn. I haven't used LinkedIn in like eight years. Um, I think my resume on there ends uh, when I left. At the account Young. Yeah, when I left the accounting industry. So I should probably update that at this point. I mean, if you want to get jobs, maybe. I think you're. I think you're totally off this um, business, like Bay Street shit, though. So, how was like that transition? That's like, you know, you were fulfilling your parents' dream, probably. Like, I totally did it, but sorry, you definitely were. You know, went to business school, get your ass up in in Bay Street, Ernest Young. You know, everyone compares, like, oh, my daughter's like here, blah blah blah, whatever. You know, so that was definitely probably an amazing. Like, how did you get out of it? How did you get into it and out of it, basically. Yeah, so, you know, actually, I was a huge disappointment, even though I did work <laughs> at Ernst & Young, because, um, you know, my dad's side of the family, um, I think he has like eight siblings, uh, one of those kind of traditional old school, like huge Chinese families. And all of my cousins on that side, like when I say all of them, I mean like literally every one of them are doctors in Hong Kong. And Ugh. they live in these mansions where you got to take the bus, like, you know, up the hill and yeah. you don't know where you're going. So, I know that. Yeah, so me becoming an accountant um, is nothing that like my dad could brag about, uh, you know, in front of the family. And there's a whole story about how my dad thought I was gifted when I was nine. And he took me to take this uh, gifted exam at, oh at, at U of T. Oh, I definitely failed. We never talked about it, which is how I know I failed because um, <laughs> he just like pretended it never happened. But anyways, so um, I was working um, at Ernst & Young and then I quit that job and bounced around working different jobs as like an internal auditor at Sears. 
I was a wow. senior financial Ooh. analyst um, at Entertainment One, which is a yeah. entertainment company that do movies, films. E One, exactly. So Ooh. that was my last job, and you know, I was just um, I was trying to get out, you know, from when I was like I would say like 25 when I was like four years into the industry I think I was just really miserable I was in one of those jobs where like there would be days when I would wake up and just honestly I would call in sick and just like not go to work for three days that that type of thing and it's like I wasn't proud of that you know like like I wanted I think I'm different now because I'm 35 but I feel like a lot of people in their 20s um, really put a lot of stock into how their work kind of defines them yeah. And I was one of those people where I felt like, oh, everything's great in my life, but I'm so unsatisfied with my job. Um, so I slowly transitioned. And, you know, what happened was, you know, I built a presence online. Um, I would pitch stories yeah. and, you know, start getting bylines here and there. But I didn't really take it seriously until um, I got laid off at Entertainment One because they restructured. And I mm-hmm. still remember that day uh, when the HR person called me in. I was so happy because I felt like um, they were making the decision for me to uh, quit my job because right. I just like didn't have the balls to like actually fully quit and walk away. So when it happened, I was so happy in there. And I told him, I'm like, um, I'm going to get married. Uh, so I got married. I'm divorced now. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to I'm like, I'm going to get married. I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to become a writer. I started telling the HR person all of this and he hands me a pamphlet, which was a suicide hotline. No! And he was like, he was like, if you're, if you're not, because because I sound delusional at that point. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So he I'm was not like, <laughs> so he was like, if if you're not okay, like we can either talk about it, or if it's private, like you know, call <laughs> oh this number. Uh, so I always remember that conversation because it's oh obviously funny to look back at now. Um, oh, but that's yeah. what happened. So I quit my job. Um, I got married, and then I moved to New York, and I actually lived there for three and a half years. And that's when I started freelancing full time. Uh, yeah. That's when I started making connections uh, in the industry. And then I moved back to Toronto, and that's where I am now. Wow. wow. That's like a... I need a moment after yeah. that story. No, I mean, I, I'm trying to take it in. And I mean, I can only imagine what your parents were saying to you in those three and a half years of everything up and down, you know, getting married, the divorce, leaving home on such a whim. And I, I totally, like, I feel like I've been in the position. And, you know, I used to work at Aritzia, of all places, like a slave fucking driving place not to talk shit i like Evie, we came from the same cloth Come yeah on, i know we but, met no i know but like it's just like sometimes there th- there are things that work out like are you getting laid off and you're just like man this is a sign like i'm going i'm gone and i mean in that time obviously there's so many ups and downs and stuff like do you regret anything um you know if i if, if there was one regret um it's definitely that when i switched uh, industries. It, it it really changed my relationship uh, with my ex-wife because um, yeah. she was from uh, the accounting industry as well, and oh. you know, we had moved to New York because she had gotten uh, a promotion and you know moved to a new company in New York. And you know you know how it is with like creatives. You know when you're you know working as a writer, you're not on the same schedule. Um, you know I'd be you know away at nights because I was covering a lot of NBA games. Yeah. Or, like both of us would be traveling for work. And at the same time, too, because it was such a new industry for me, and when I switched, I was almost 30, I felt like I needed to catch up. So I spent a lot of time basically devoted to my work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that really took away, uh, you know, from the time that we could spend with each other. And that's really the main reason why, you know, we drifted um, and, you know, we ultimately separated. So if there is one thing, you know, I think that's the thing. 
uh, yeah. because you know definitely like I, I I still do right like you talk about uh, the daily podcast or you know how is he able to write a book and things like that um, I think now it's not less that I feel very desperate to kind of push through in the industry it's just that you know I feel like I've gotten you know I've done well and I've obviously gotten a lot of lucky breaks and people have helped me out in, in this industry I enjoy doing what I do so much that I yeah. just devote so much time to it yeah, it sounds like even the your career trajectory was writing always something that you enjoy doing. And then how was that such like a natural transition for you? And especially going to basketball too. Yeah, so I think I've always loved both writing and sports uh, growing up, but it was never something where I thought I could do, right? Like I was just one of those guys who, you know, just watch sports all the time, you know, would read Sports Illustrated, you know, magazines, uh, you know, any books that I could get myself on. And, you know, writing, I really enjoyed like English classes, like way back, you know, back in school when we had to write essays and things like that. On paper. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to make a joke about me being old. I can't think of anything right now. I, I, well, um, I kind of did I'm that. like, we all wrote on paper, sir. <laughs> no, no, I can't have you. I didn't want it's to stab <laughs> the wound and twist it, but. <laughs> it's funnier, it's funnier when I say it. Um, yeah, but, true. <laughs> It's sad when you say it. Um, yeah, but, really. Uh, that's actually so rude. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I respect it. Um, okay. But um, yeah, I, I think it was just trying to merge those interests. And like with anything, I felt like it was just kind of like getting reps, right? Like you figure out, uh, like I knew how to write, obviously, but like you have to find your own voice. And I felt like, especially in sports, because it's such a competitive field and it's easy to get lost in it. Uh, it took me a few years to to really have the confidence to, you know, pitch stories that I felt fit my own voice and stories that I wanted to tell instead of just following what people were doing. Uh, so that was definitely the hardest part of the process, I would say. I mean, for me, being, yes, younger and in this industry, and it wasn't like journalism wasn't an industry I wanted to go into originally. And I didn't really cover sports until, you know, last year, I just got to go around the court, like throwing around my iPhone, like a moron, like my cracked screen, like taking stupid videos. Like iPhone six. I don't care actually. You know what? Photographers used to like freaking yell at me and be like, get, it's an eight, but it's broken. Pause because I was using an iPhone six until like eight months ago. So I'm oh, no, because I know I saw your post. I think I was like creeping your Instagram and then someone asked, oh my God, what kind of phone do you use? And you're like, iPhone six dog. <laughs> and I'm like, damn. So the backstory of this is, uh, you know, I, I feel very comfortable saying this on this podcast because it's an Asian safe space. Yes. Um, you know, I am I am notoriously just like really cheap with the phone stuff. Like I'm not the Same. guy that's like, I'm not the guy that's watching like, you know, when like uh, Apple has those big presentations <laughs> and yeah, they're, they're like, so oh, scary. yeah, you're going to need 11 plugs just to like get a headphone into your iPhone. <laughs> and so I have a friend, my friend, John, uh, shout outs to him. Shout out he's, he's that guy. So he's that guy who like gets the new phone. So he hands it down to me Do you um, get all the time. Wow. Yeah, but nice. I finally I finally got uh, like the iPhone. I don't even know what I have. I think it's the 11 or whatever the latest one is. I finally updated it because I walked into Rogers and it was like a good deal. And I was tired of uh, people making fun of my photos because I'm insecure. Nice. <laughs> and anyways, yeah. So I was just doing my thing on the court with my phone, whatever. And obviously I would see you there and it would be to me. So like you and Will, obviously. And I was like, damn. And even on Twitter, like you know, you don't have to be that old white dude who's covered sports for 10,000 years and, you know, the guy or whatever. And I'm not saying 
nobody's like not saying like people suck for that but you know in every freaking industry like that's your leader right that's your person you go to like you know sports analysts they're all you know pretty much the same so it was a really big concept like it was just like oh my god I feel so proud seeing you know Alex there Will there it was just like it was mind-blowing to me and it just made me feel like you know what like if this stupid ass like white photographer's gonna yell at me like I'm just gonna be stand here with my phone and block his view like I don't know why I don't I need to like step off the court because you've been doing this for like you know decades or whatever right so when you came back to Toronto I guess and you were doing that did you ever feel like or even in New York like when you're trying to break into writing sports did you ever feel like man there's like a a gatekeeping situation there perhaps especially being an Asian man yeah Uh, yeah to obviously like spell out like it's so rare for us to see Asian people in the sports industry in the journalistized uh, journalistic side of things media and obviously as a player yeah just cut yeah how do you feel about that yeah no definitely uh, I think from the beginning um, you know being in New York and moving here the experiences uh, are the same you definitely feel like uh, you 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 feel like an outsider right yeah, um, yeah. I, I think just walking into a media room and not seeing familiar faces you feel that right away yeah and there's not a lot of people that will come to you and you know kind of you know help guide you like Evie you've been to the arena like sometimes when it's your first time there it's hard to know kind of which room to go to for sure or or just basic routine that that's all second nature to people like us now because we've done it right um so you know that part for sure you know i've definitely felt it and i think just in general in this industry and i feel like in any industry uh, especially in media across just sports or like news reporting that you do um there's just an expectation that you're supposed to conform and you're yeah. supposed to like go by the rules of what other people have set. And, you know, that's a thing that, you know, still, you know, upsets me today. And, and you know, that's why I think it's great that, you know, the two of you are doing a podcast like this or like Will and I are doing, you know, our thing, you know, with, you know, our Raptors coverage is that we don't have to um, follow uh, what other people are doing. We can create um, kind of our own groups and kind of create our own uh, community. And, you know, that did take some time. And, and, you know, from my experience of, you know, feeling like an outsider and feeling like people weren't there to really help me, you know, whenever I see people um, at the arena and, you know, I'm not, yeah, I'm comfortable saying that, like, I will pretty much only help, like, you know, minorities, like Asians and like yeah, people yeah, of color. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I feel like they don't really have someone to kind of hold their hand and like lead, lead the way. So as much as I can, when I'm there, if I see someone new, um, I will try to like show them the ropes and stuff because, you yeah. know, I know how difficult it is to just, you know, being there. It's a like like I think you would agree. I mean, it's like it can be very intimidating being it's in that so environment for the first time. Yeah. And it, I mean, the first time I went there, that's exactly how I felt. They're like, I'm like, where do I go? They're like this entrance. They probably thought you were lost. Yeah. Or like I'm just some like China cleaning lady or something. I don't know what the hell they thought. Anyways, I was there and I was just like, this is a maze. But you also can't just show up. And I think for me, I have like this complex also like you know being Asian but also being a woman like be stepping into a freaking sports arena and just like where where do I go like I don't want to do that so yeah I made tons of wrong turns and tons of all this stuff and yeah I could have asked someone and I think I would I just asked like the people that work there but I just didn't want to seem like a fool like a noob right I don't want to like people to look at me like oh my god this here's like another stupid idiot like social media person like girl who's gonna like scream when the ball comes near like I don't even want to hear that like that is not what I want to do right so um my first time going to the arena I just like didn't even know where to go but I just I guess followed some people because 
you know, everyone in the media room acts like they're really busy, you know, like they're like writing or they're too busy talking to like people in the court. And I'm just like, I'm not going to like interject in this conversation. Like, I don't know what this is. So yeah, for me, it was intimidating. I don't know, like your, if you remember your first time stepping in there, but I was just like, now I know, but I, and I try to help as well, because I don't want anyone to feel as lost as I, as I did, but try to trying to hold it in at the same time. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Do you remember your first time going to the arena? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think I was more fortunate because, you know, I did know some of the writers that were there and yeah. they were kind enough uh, to lead the way. But, you know, even despite that, like it's it's hard to feel like you really belong um, yeah, in yeah. the group. And I think it just like another thing. And, and I don't know if you two agree with me. It's just that I feel like whenever if I'm the only person, like the only Asian in a group of like white people, um, like I just naturally feel uh, not myself. Yeah. Like, I just don't feel as comfortable as, say, um, you know, si- you know, sitting here right now having conversations, uh, you know, having a conversation with two Asians. Like, like, I feel like constantly that, you know, white people just have a certain perception of Asian people, um, of like how we are. Um, and like, if you don't um, act a particular way or, you know, if you're too loud or if you're too opinionated, uh, then they kind of look at you uh, a yeah. different way. Where like, you know, we were sitting here at the start of this conversation and you were listing out, you know, all the things that I've, you know, written f- uh, places I've written for and like all the things that I've, I've accomplished um, kind of sitting here and sharing that uh, with the two of you. It's like a sense of pride. Right. In, in yeah. terms of, you know, being able to see someone like myself, um, you know, being able to do this kind of work. Whereas if I were to have that conversation uh, with, you know, uh, three white people. Um, you know, they they would take it another way, I feel like. You know, this guy is yeah, uh, yeah. A very full of himself. Um, you know, yeah. he's a little bit too confident. Um, and, and that's the stuff that I'm like, you know, I'm just one person. Obviously, I can't change these perceptions. But whenever I can, you know, when I talk to people or, I've, or I have a platform to use my voice, I always tell like people like, you know, if you're proud of your stuff, you know, if, if you're proud of your resume and your work, especially as an Asian, you should speak out on that. You know, you shouldn't be so uh, humble about like things that you've accomplished or if people give you a compliment you shouldn't be like oh no like that's you know that's nothing like i i'm super proud of myself for like making the transition into this industry and not just being in this industry but being really good at what i do and i don't feel like i should like hide that at all right you know it's not like i walk around bragging all the time but it's like if you're proud of what you do i feel like especially as an asian in any field that you're doing like don't let people kind of suffocate that you should put yourself out there and be proud of yourself. Yeah. So what you were saying about, you know, we should be really proud of our achievements is something that I think as an Asian person, personally, for me, I was always taught, you know, never brag and never say that stuff. Like, yeah, you do well. Like, you know, you know, the whole, you got an A, it's not an A plus. And even if you got an A plus, like, I don't want you to come around here, like gloat, like your parents would never care for that. They'd be like, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but also just in front of other people, it's always like, um, and the way I grew up, like in my Chinese family, it's like a lot of put downs, like compared to your cousins, compared to whatever. So even no matter how creative you think you are and creativity, sorry, it's not valued in an Asian household, honestly, but no matter how well you do, or like you got the highest mark in class, it's not like, you know, white kids get to show it off. And they do that when they grow up in real life in their careers too, with all the sa- things they say, they get the panels, they write on Twitter, like, you know, they're authority figures. So that's a big thing that I was learning. And so um, in that industry, I guess that's been a big change for you. Like, I don't know from accounting, like how you could gloat, like, oh, I'm the best accountant or whatever. But like, has that now worked as a writer? Because you can, 
you know, be like, Hey, I wrote this or whatever and not being gross about it, but just like being proud of your achievements. Like, was it hard to transition to become more open about it? I guess. I think so. You know, I think obviously, you know, early on when you're in this industry, you don't want to sound like the type that, you know, knows everything. And certainly like, I, I, I don't want to come off as that now, you know, I feel like there's still a lot of things I can get better at, you know, as a writer, as a reporter, um, or, or whatever role that, that I'm taking on. But um, I think the Asian parents thing you mentioned is a really good point. And I actually think about that a lot. I think it's because, um, like, we j- always joke about how Asian parents are obviously like never satisfied with anything, right? Like it takes a lot for them uh, to compliment you mm-hmm. or, or even say like the, you know, the, the easiest thing, like you did a good job on this yeah. uh, and things like that. And because of that, I feel like we're like conditioned to never be proud of things that we do. Yeah. And then it, you add in the fact that we talked about how there's so few of us in these different industries. Uh, white people always have their colleagues to prop them up. Um, you know, one of my favorite tweets I've ever read, someone said white people will be like, oh, it's the it's the man, it's the myth, it's the legend. And it's just Garrett. <laughs> and that one has really just stuck with me because that's what white people do. Right. Like they'll yeah, hype yeah. up their friends yeah. um, about what they do. And you're like, oh, like he's just an ordinary <laughs> dude. He just like it's just he it's just Garrett. Came to work today? <laughs> it's yeah. just Garrett. Exactly. And we don't have a lot of people propping us up mm-hmm. right like like certainly i think uh asians are, are very supportive of each other's work but at the end of the day there's just not enough of us and you yeah. know sometimes white people have the bigger platforms uh to be able to amplify so i think that's where it came from for me it, it just reached a point for me where i was like i looked around and i was like how come all of these people are you know getting propped up and hyped up and nobody's talking about my work yeah. when i'm totally confident and comfortable knowing that my work is as good if not better than other people and you know part of that is because you know i i think you know just my personality like i don't i don't really roll in like you know huge groups or like i don't like you know networking and that part of thing but (laughs) a lot of a lot of people in the industry you have to acknowledge them first before they'll acknowledge you and i hate playing that it's a hierarchy it's a hierarchy and and i and i refuse to play that game and you know if it if it's more difficult for me to get to where I want to doing it on my on my own and doing it the way that I want to, I'll get more satisfaction out of that anyways. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's the thing I always tell younger writers, too, is like you just have to build your own voice and, and you know, build your own platform and don't try to follow what other people are doing. Because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, if you don't hype yourself up, like nobody's going to do it for you. Yeah, that's so true. I feel like it is so common for Asians to be in a room and feel like you never belong there. I'm going to contradict that only because I think I grew up in a very small town where like I was always a token Asian. So my mentality more so now that I recognize is that when I am the, when there is more Asian, I feel this like instant competition to be like, but I got to be the cool one. I got to be the most like fashionable one. I hate that I feel like I battle that internal things. Like I recently felt it where um, I was creeping my manager's calendar. Do you guys ever do that to your colleagues? It's so fun. But (laughs) manager's calendar because what's public knowledge? Um, yeah, and then okay. we're hiring for Fine. new people for our next round of, of like hiring and stuff like that. And I was creeping who they're interviewing and a lot of the names were like Asian names. And I was like, 
what? But like, I'm the only Asian in this team and I'm cool. And I felt this like no. instant competition. I was like, I need to check myself. What the fuck am I doing? Yeah but, yeah, yeah. but I think it's so common to feel that like, you know, you're small, maybe like you need to be a little bit extra version of yourself to like stand out. So I 100% agree. But I think maybe in terms of like the family upbringing, I can probably count the amount of times my mom said, I'm proud of you in my one hand, in my entire adult yeah. life, my entire yeah. life. And yeah. I'm totally basing this off of like American television and movies that I see. But, you know, they celebrate like your first baseball game or like, you know, the first yeah. tooth you lost. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's such like a... Because there's such a nurturing and, like, love of celebration and, like, you know, achieving milestones, making scrapbooks. Like, what? My mom has never taken a photo of me. Or, like, you know, only when I was skinny, you know? So I think it's, like, not Okay, Korean, we get it. I think not having those upbringings totally has impacted our confidence to even, like, be proudly say. And, like, my cousins and like my family no one is a doctor and like I not even to brag like I think I'm the most like financially stable and like career driven person out of there my mom has never still brought me up in their family conversation to be like oh Jasmine's doing this I'm still like the dark horse and I have no idea why probably because I'm dating a white guy but that's another story but (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a different podcast I'm down to talk about it though (laughs) but anyways so yeah I totally get that but bring it back to one of the articles that I read but that really stuck with me was the one you were covering Jeremy Lin being uh, the Raptors that you wrote for the New York Times. It's so uncommon to see uh, Asian people in the sports industry. You wrote that like, I'm just going to quote you. Throughout my career, I've always felt that accomplishing the same things as my peers resulted in getting only half of the credit and recognition, partially because of who I am. When Lynn arrived in Toronto, I was flooded with interview requests from radio hosts and fellow writers. It was an honor to speak about Lynn's career path, but later I became disappointed that those same publications and radio shows saw me only as someone who could bring value when it comes to discussing this topic that was unfamiliar to them, when in fact I am more than capable of having a conversation solely about basketball. Mm -hmm. Elaborate, tell us more. Yeah, so the funny thing about that is, so I forgot I had slipped that in there. That was actually really important for me to just include some kind of personal anecdote in there. 100%. But uh, my editor at the Times actually uh, emailed me and was like, I hope you weren't talking about me. <laughs> oh, uh, but you are. No, no, but, she, but she's great. She's great. She's great. Okay, so, Okay, shout out to that editor. Shout out to Chantel. Um, she just wanted to make sure that, you know, I wasn't kind of, you know, upset. You know, she, yeah, yeah, she yeah. just didn't want to think that she was asking me to write this story. And, you know, I was angry because that she was Asian? making me just write an Asian story. Right, right, right. She's she's worked with me on so many other different NBA features that aren't Asian related. But, yeah, yeah, you know, that's the thing for me. And I think after I wrote that story, you know, I remember so many other experiences. Uh, you know, I've had editors here in Toronto um, who I've never worked with, you know, asked me to grab coffee. And there was one specific time, you know, I'm not going to name the name or publication, because I'm trying to keep my money right. But like, yeah. um, so I can afford a Zoom subscription. Um, Shut up! So, so I was uh, grabbing coffee and he was like, hey, I want to hear about your ideas. I really like what you do. And I tried to pitch him kind of different things, uh, features around the city. And he just kept bringing the conversation back to, you know, we could really use a lot of stories about Markham um, and, you know, and the Asian population. <laughs> and, you know, it was actually kind of naive of me because in the moment it didn't really hit me like that. Yeah. Because I felt like I was trying to pitch him stories. And then later on, when I kind of recalled this conversation and told some of my Asian friends 
uh, that's when we all realized that like that was Damn, just you know you that was just a really yeah that was a really stereotypical thing to Pretty do and it just up, yeah. turned me off and you know when when daryl morey of the houston rockets uh tweeted about hong kong earlier this mm-hmm. year and oh, it became yeah. a, a whole thing especially in the nba you know i had one editor who i've never worked with or actually ever talked to like we just follow each other on twitter like he dm'd me and he just asked if i would write about it and i i felt really disrespected in the same way that i how i expressed it mm-hmm. in that new york times piece in that you know you've never worked with me before um, you know, you've never, you know, reached out to me to hear about my story pitches. But now that you want you want an Asian person, you, you want an Asian byline about this story, uh, which me growing up in Hong Kong, like that story was so uh, like it was personal to me. You know, it, it was something to the point where I didn't really want to write about it. Uh, certainly like publications asked me to. And, you know, that was really upsetting to me, too. And so it's those kind of instances uh, where I feel like people just view us kind of as a novelty mm-hmm. and you know they only want us when you know they can extract something that they think only we can bring to the table and yeah. that drives to the bigger problem mm-hmm. of uh, people not viewing us as equals yeah totally i i also agree like that happens to us a lot like we're just token just to be there like alex you you know you know basketball inside and out you know you know you you have commentary for everything but just to be asked about those two specific things one being you know, this whole communist China, Hong Kong thing. It's like a hard thing. You can't even take it personally. And they're just like, oh, just write it. You know, you're Asian. Like, I expect you to know it, whatever. It's just like, it's so much more than that. You can't even, and imagine trying to dissect the layers and tell them what, that's why you couldn't do it. Like, oh, I actually grew up here. Well, why does that matter? Oh, it matters because of this. And he'd be like, but why? you know, like, it's just so many layers. And I think also because of our upbringing, we're told to like, obviously don't cause problems and just go with the flow. And I think if I was a freelance writer and I've, been in that position before before just thinking like this is a thing you don't want to say no to opportunity so like the markham thing if that's what he wanted like i totally would have been in your shoes and been like okay fine at least he like wants me to write something but then there's also that flip being like what the like why am i just writing about that like so um i think that's what happens to a lot of writers they get really pigeonholed into like okay you're you know like I've, i've i have friends who you know their background is indian they're like i'm brown so they want me to write about peel and i'm like okay well yeah like that that kind of stuff is so annoying, but we also need opportunity. So it's always a constant struggle being like, I want to have the agency to say no to things that I find offensive and token and whatever. But it's just like, I know a lot of people struggle with this. It's just being like, okay, I just need to write. I need to, you know, make money. I need to eat and survive. And I want to be a writer. So that equals I have, you know, writing anything. So have you ever felt like that kind of weird balance, I guess? Yeah, no, I think for sure. You know, in those situations, I was in a position of privilege to be able to say that, no, I don't need yeah. this paycheck, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to say that, you know, this actually was offensive to me and I'm not going to pursue it. Um, you know, so fortunately, you know, I, I haven't had to feel like I've had to compromise um, for a lot of these things. But I, I totally, you know, understand what you're saying. Like, there's probably so many writers out there. And it's such a hard balance because, you know, I have written a lot of stories um, that I've pitched myself uh, that are very, um, you know, Asian or, you know, related to Asian people. It's a hard balance to want to tell those stories versus having someone tell you that they want those stories. Uh, those are two very different things to me. Do you feel like um, kind of being more seasoned into your career, how are you approaching these conversations when an editor maybe sends you this and pitches you something and you're kind of upset about it? Do you like correct them or where do you kind of stand now in terms of moving forward? to change the narrative, I guess. 
Yeah, you know, I feel like for me personally, when I, when I've had those incidents, um, I've just kept them very private. Uh, you know, you know, I will have conversations uh, with the editors, but usually, to be honest, like um, I just get pretty angry in the moment. So, like you know, for me, I just kind of say no um, and kind of step away from it. Um, but certainly, I feel like I'm still trying to figure out. You know, having a platform online and knowing that I have a lot of Asian people、um, who follow me, or you know, younger writers who might look up to me, I want to figure out kind of how to use that voice as well, right? To to kind of speak out on issues, and especially recently,、um, you know, that latest round of you know conversations、um, about diversity in media, right? I think I do my part, but you know, I think you also have to be. Unfortunately, you do have to be strategic about it. Because the other thing that is not fair is, you know, whenever we do speak on those issues,、uh, somehow we're the ones that are looked at as,、uh, you know, troublemakers. Like you don't want to be around Alex, or you don't want to be around Evie. You know, you don't want to be around Jasmine because, like, they're just constantly calling people out or like having issues, and they want to make every conversation about race. But you know, that's a whole other conversation about how you know white people, I think, just get really insecure. When they want to, when we want to have those conversations, yeah, and I mean those conversations are our entire life. Like I don't, you know, leave my house a single day thinking I'm I can't talk about it. That's just who I am. So yeah, I, I've definitely had those combos, and I totally agree. It's just like frustrating because it's like this isn't a topic or like a random side, like a you know, it's not a random topic like write about race, just write about race or whatever. But like it's it's. It, it, you know, it, like I can't separate. If I'm going to do a news story on anything and get people's comment, I'm not going to write it without having everybody's comment. That's just how I feel about it. So, like I, I wish I could be like Shireen Ahmed. You know, you've spoken to her, and she, she's literally like burn it all down because she will call people out on her stuff. And I wish I had that. You know,、um, I wish I could do that. And I feel like maybe I can, and I'm trying to. And you know, you slowly gain your voice by seeing people like. Speak out on their own, like when I watch like you on Twitter or Will or Shreen, you know, like just be yourself, and even if it's different from what everyone knows or whatever. So, I think it's like a voice that I think younger writers and you know me, like like I I feel like I just kind of found my voice, you know, recently. But、um, yeah, it, it's a it's a weird thing. When I first got Twitter, I was like, I'm not going to use this for anything, but just like tweeting out news stories and you know getting people to get back to me, like、uh, like if I need to round out people or whatever. But then it just became like now I'm just like no let's just like use this tool so this whole like reckoning in the newsroom situation has been like you know everyone's calling out everything and all this stuff and it just sucks that it's seen as like troublemaking when really it's just you know <laughs> it's the truth yeah and and I think too like aside from just、um, using your public platform you, you can also have a lot of these conversations privately as well. Um, you know whether it's talking to an editor or someone in a position of power you know if they are honestly. Willing to engage in a conversation, and you know if they're honestly willing to make、uh, concrete changes and see how they can bring more、uh, Asians and people of color into、um, you know positions of power,、uh, then you know you don't have to you know use that public platform. You know you can take those conversations、um, offline and things like that. And I think ultimately it's just you know all of us you know operate in、uh, different circles.、Uh, I think it's just important for each of us. To you know, figure out how to use our platform publicly or, or privately to really just try to change the mindset of people. Because、yeah. I know it sometimes just feels so frustrating. Because you know, how are people just realizing that there's a diversity problem or acknowledging it publicly, 
in the year 2020, like, did you not hear us talk about this? Like, you know, all those other times? Yeah. Just because now we're, I think we're in kind of a new age where you can't just get away with ignoring issues of inequality now that people are forced to acknowledge it that you're suddenly going to acknowledge it like the the funniest thing i always tell people is like i know how pissed off some of these white writers are when they log on twitter and they're like oh shit they're still talking about this diversity stuff. <laughs> again i love it i love it keep it going no i i definitely feel like they're like fuck this shit again um when is this gonna be over you know like i hope this like news cycle just trickles out that kind of thing yeah i mean you even wrote about in your um like national post article i think like 2019 where you just clearly state like it is actually offensive and it's just racism i don't know why we're like going around and like tiptoeing around saying what it actually is and something that i read or saw on Instagram a while ago was like, you know, why, why are we calling these like microaggressions? They're just plain racism. And yeah. I think, yeah, maybe it is in our nature and we're just talking, um, speaking on behalf of like maybe like other Asian cultures that we've recognized is like, yeah, like there is like the model minority myth where we don't want to speak up and like, we want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but like, why are we being so scared? Like you said too, Alex, like we don't want to seem like, oh, that one Asian loud guy, like who will always like call out it being racism, but I don't like I I don't know what the next step is either and like what we can do but like aren't we like not giving us enough like credibility when we're not actually speaking up and like saying it and of course all those conversations can be private doesn't always have to be you know in the lines of like cancel culture which is already toxic on its own um but yeah I think we do need to like continue to speak up and I think to your point earlier, we do need more Asians and people of color in all these industries to be able to do that. But I think what we want to do is highlight, yeah, there is a, a kick-ass Asian sports writer writing for the biggest publications out there. And there's two Asian women talking about like all these things in a, a small podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that's like a good small step we can do. But wondering if there's any maybe you said you have maybe a lot of younger writers who want to get into the same thing. Anything you want to share knowledge of? given that you've had all these journey to experience it yourself. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that I always try to tell young writers is, you know, recognize that, you know, a lot of the roadblocks that you feel like you're going through are not unique uh, to you. You know, if you feel like, you know, some of the conversations that we've had earlier on this episode about gatekeeping uh, yeah. and, you know, how intimidated you feel uh, in those environments, you know, I never want them to be discouraged uh, because they feel that way when they enter the industry. And, you know, I want them to know that, you know, they can reach out to someone like me, uh, someone like the two of you, um, you know, to talk about whatever that they want. And, you know, I think that's really important. And, you know, you know, for, for the two of you, like the industries that you work in, like being a woman alone is hard enough. Right. And then you add in the fact that you're Asian, too. Um, yeah, no, like it's a huge like it's a huge issue. And it's not something I'm going to speak to because like I don't have a similar experience as the two of you. I just don't. Um, but like I, I think for all the young writers, I just tell them like you. That's why, like, for me, the biggest thing I do is, you know, I really do encourage people to reach out to me and I have those conversations with them uh, one on one to share my experience with them, because I just want them to know that there are people who understand uh, what they have to go through and also to show them that there are people like us who have dealt with those things and kind of come out on the other side and are still doing well at what we do. Yeah. And I I think that whole thing was a huge like learning curve. And, you know, from when I grew up, I grew up in a really white school. So did jazz like in Canada and like 
So uh, for me, it was a lot of unlearning. You know, you don't have to be white to be good. You can't even be white if you wanted to. You can never buy as many Uggs to make you as white as possible. It's not, you're never going to be white, that kind of thing. Um, but we, you know, we had talked and like you had mentioned you grew up and I, I'm familiar with Markham in Richmond Hill. And I know it's like its own bubble with a lot of, you know, Chinese people and growing up there. Um, did like when like living like growing up there did you ever feel like you were kind of blind to it or not able to see as much just because you know your whole community is maybe shares the same sentiment or something oh certainly i, I think a lot of these things that i feel about being asian and you know the things that i think about now you know from uh kind of a race standpoint uh really came a lot later in my life you know probably in my 20s and probably i'm still processing that stuff now because mm -hmm. growing up in markham um, you know, as you know, as everybody knows, it's a very predominantly Asian, uh, you know, neighborhood. And like I when I went to school, you know, I, I came from Hong Kong, immigrated here in grade three. And I still remember like, you know, the first day of school, obviously not knowing what to expect. And I walk in there and it just didn't feel very foreign to me because like 20 out of the 25 kids <laughs> were Chinese. And like, we, yeah. you know, the biggest thing was to like, you know, not get in trouble because the teacher would always tell us to like not speak in Cantonese. You know, because he wanted us to speak Talk English. Talk about her in front of her. <laughs> Wait, that's what they always thought. Why did they always think that? Like, it wasn't always the case. It's so annoying. It, no it was that. always the case. Actually, yeah, right? what are you talking about? <laughs> Fuck you, Alex. Wait, did you then never have to throw out your lunch because everyone was eating fried rice? Yeah, you yeah, never threw um, off the I, I luxury. I got on, no, I got whitewashed early. I was on, like, Lunchables oh. early. Um, oh, wow. So, Your parents yeah. really didn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> no, legit like the king of the news of the lunchroom, not newsroom. That's a, that's, a that's a separate conversation, uh, sorting cool, cool. through the relationship with my parents. No, but I think I think that experience was a lot different. You know, I think Jazz was saying earlier, too, like, you know, depending on, you know, how you grew up or what town you're in, you don't think about this stuff until later in life. You know, like yeah. when, I, when I'm in like grade eight, like all I want to do is just fit in and like be cool um, and like, you know, um, you know, have a social life, you know, in high school and university and, you know, high school and university, too. I think were similar experiences for me uh, in terms of, you know, not realizing that I was a minority. Right. You know, in many ways, you know, I think there are obviously scenarios where you realize you're not white and like you're not, you know, the predominant, you know, the dominant race, whatever you want to call it. But yeah. like it wasn't until I got into the workplace, um, you know, talking about like working at Ernst & Young where I looked around and I was like, oh, and then I started realizing that, oh, if I did, uh, if I had the same kind of performance review as the next person, as Garrett, uh, Garrett's the one that's <laughs> going to get promoted. <laughs> yeah. And it's like really frustrating when there's no explanation for it. Right. Like, it's yeah. just because because the managerial level is predominantly white. So, you know, they're going to favor these people. And, you know, if we if we as Asians, like we talk about, if we're like timid and we don't speak out and, you know, tell them that we want these positions or we want this promotion, yeah. then they just automatically think that, oh, he's just kind of clocking in uh, nine to five. He doesn't have ambition like that goes back to like us just having to like show ourselves more than a lot of other people because there's no one yeah. there to kind of vouch for us. And, you know, that's when it started hitting me. And that's when I think I my mindset became a little bit more jaded. Yeah. And, you know, I think over time and I don't I don't think I've ever lost that since I was a kid. I feel like I've always been proud to be Asian. And honestly, that's again, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, there's a lot of Asians who aren't very proud oh, of so many. You know, so, their identity. So right. Yeah. But but it's like that's the other thing that I tried to maybe kind of put out there 
just like yeah. ju- just a general energy of you know being proud of just who I am, and yeah. I think again, that's important too. I think we only started realizing these things when we're old enough to afford therapy. So shout out to therapy <laughs> and giving us a salary <laughs> to afford it. But yeah, and also so true. Yeah. And maybe like having time away from your parents to constantly make so you feel true. like. Oh, just keep your damn job and shut the fuck up and work, please. Like, why are you complaining? Who cares about Garrett? Doesn't matter. Just do your own thing. Just be more um, like Garrett. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, Garrett's probably not like I know a lot like a lot of the frustrations my mom is that Garrett's never really the best worker, but it really knows how to talk in meetings. So you know what I mean? Mm. It's a it's a whole thing and that's a we can learn from Garrett. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> no, we can't. We I don't know, maybe. Um I guess lastly, like the topic we want to touch on is like, I mean, I read something about how conservative men, like white men really have like an Asian theme, like fetish, like for women, because there's this whole theme of like domination and stuff. But then unfortunately for our Asian men, and I am like, you know, it's a topic that I really want to like dive into. It's probably a longer topic, but I just want your perspective. Like the whole stigma between behind Asian men, not even as romantically, but just as like people, like, you know, like not strong, super weak like pushovers and that happens at work too right like i'm like you're saying like sorry garrett and his buddies are probably gonna be like this guy's gonna work like all night let's go to the he bar doesn't have like a you know friend like, whatever he's not yeah, getting like, laid so like what is the like what like what is your take on this I, like i just need to know like clear some stuff up and share some perspectives from an asian man and i feel like to add to that like you have so much like clout and cool factor working in the sports industry, you're kind of taking over that from Garrett. Like, how do you feel? Screw Garrett. <laughs> Listen, you guys gotta stop using Garrett. All right? you've, you've mentioned Garrett like 15 times. Um, never telling you guys another tweet again. Um, no, I think, I think definitely, uh, you know, I think those kind of stereotypes about, you know, Asian men being timid, you know, not confident, being a pushover. Uh, those are the things that, you know, I think it just comes from so much of like how we're viewed is just how like white people perceive us, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we aren't those things, but you know, people think we are those things because white people just, uh, that's the baseline that they come from. It's like, if I'm in a setting, uh, you know, meeting white people, a group of white people for the first time, and you know, usually I'm very, you know, I don't like to be, um, you know, the loud person, so I'll be very quiet. You know, I just like to, you know, see how people are first before I kind of open up. But me being quiet will lead people to kind of think that I am those stereotypes. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, whereas, you know, if you're a white guy, uh, you know, maybe, you know, carrying yourself, um, you know, that way is looked oh, at as mysterious. like charismatic. Yeah, you're, you're very charismatic. You're what like a, a really you're like a really like strong, silent type. Right. <laughs> um, so like, how is that fair that I get judged for that? If I'm carrying myself the same way as the other person. So I do think a lot of those stereotypes are changing slowly, I want to say, just in terms of if you look at different industries, I know Hollywood is the easiest one to point to, right? Like just Asian men being in more masculine roles now. Mm -hmm. Um, But these changes are very slow, right? Like we shouldn't still have to be pointing at individual examples. Like we shouldn't really Mm -hmm. even be having those conversations But, you know, I think once again, with the same thing, like I would like to think that, you know, with me carrying myself uh, with a certain level of confidence that hopefully, you know, younger writers or, you know, people who want to do the same thing or look up to me can see that. And that's all anyone can do is just impact the uh, community of people that are around you. Right. 
And I, and I know that because I've had conversations with people who are like, oh, you know, I love that, you know, you and Will are, are doing these things. And I love the confidence that you guys have in these things. Like, I feel like it does inspire people. Yeah. Now, is it inspiring a huge group of people? Probably not. But like, even if it does impact, you know, one person or, you know, two people and how they carry themselves in their life, I think it's really important. But for sure, those stereotypes exist. Um, and it's unfortunate because I feel like it's so ingrained in people's minds. Our podcast has a huge following, so you're just gonna get offers left and right, you know? Yeah, anybody <laughs> wanna offer me a thousand dollars for, you know, whatever you guys want, um, just hit me up. Yeah. yeah, don't hit us up, hit him up. Like I can't, we can't help you. But <laughs> we're good, we're good. Yeah, we're fine. But yeah, no, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. And you know, I think- Thank you. you I mean, you taught us all both a lesson. Like we have our little platform, but we're still gonna try our best. Like even if one little Asian kid listens to this, it's gonna be like, I wish little because he's young, not because he's small. Oh my God. Is that I'm really? just clarifying. Okay, well, I mean a child, like a kid, is listening to this in high school and they have no sense of direction. Break like, the stigma. I am switch transitioning this so hard. If they need help and they want to listen to this, I wish there was a podcast out there for like when I was young to make me feel like a normal person or whatever. So Thank you so much. And just like last thing, because we have to just fucking ask it. I'm sorry. How are the Raps going to do this year in Disney yeah. World? Yeah, I think the Raptors are going to win the championship of course at Disney is. World. So. By default, because we won last year. I don't watch basketball full transparency. <laughs> yeah, by default. And I always root for the Raptors because it's good for me uh, work-wise. Work-wise. True, true. Get that income going. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, uh, follow Steven LeBron on Twitter and Instagram. It's truly written. I mean, not the PH Steven, but the V Steven and, uh, definitely follow us too. And send us your DMS, um, at I'm maiden underscore and go to Apple podcasts and give us a five-star rating and <laughs> drop a line and give us a review because Steven LeBron over here is shaming us putting out one episode a day where if you yeah. think they would get through one episode a month. So give us We also, love. like, no, like, sorry, full disclosure, this is like two Zoom calls because I can't afford a Zoom subscription. So if anyone wants to pay for me, I'm so down and I'm so sorry that happened. But thank you again for joining us, Alex. Yeah, any last words, Alex? Let me see. Because I made a lot of this notes. This was the best interview, right? Oh, I, yeah. No, it was a great interview. I really appreciate the two of you for having you on. And, you know, for Asians listening, um, you know, this is a really fake deep quote. I, don't, I actually don't know where I got it from, but I, I heard it on a podcast uh, that I can't remember now from a few months ago. But, you know, if no club will have you, start your own. Uh, and I think that's honestly uh, a, an attitude that a lot of Asian people should carry. You shouldn't try to want to fit in. Uh, start your own Start your own club. Uh, build your own platform. I think I think that's really important. Wow. Yeah, find your own damn people. Okay, well, everybody. End it there. Wow, great shattering. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Maiden. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at imaiden underscore. We would love to hear from you and keep the conversation going. Stay safe until next time.